0: Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups,
1: where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet.
0: This is episode four of The Full Ratchet. I'm Nick Moran, and I'm very excited to have Howard Tolman on the show today. He's a seminal figure in the startup scene here in Chicago and has some powerful insights on startup investing. Uh, This interview is still centered on the what question. So far, we've been laying the groundwork by establishing what is venture, what is an angel investor, what is the makeup of the startup ecosystem. After this interview, we transition more into the how. So how should an investor evaluate startups? How to get deal flow, i.e. how to find startups for investment? How should an investor choose to structure the deal, whether that be traditional equity or a convertible note or something else? So I committed from the outset that from the startup investor standpoint, we'd focus on how to do this well and learn from the most innovative and successful people in the industry. So we'll continue to lay some of the fundamental groundwork today with Howard, and next week we're going to transition into some topics on the how. All right. With that said, here's my interview on the topic... The startup ecosystem, key players in the venture industry. Today we have Howard Tolman on the show. He is CEO of 1871 and general managing partner of two high tech early stage venture funds. Personally, I've had a very positive experience interacting with startups and other players in the industry over at 1871. If you don't know it, it's based in the merchandise mart here in Chicago and is home to many startups, mentors, and advisors, an accelerator, and even the starter league, formerly known as Code Academy. While only a couple years old, it really functions as the central technology hub of the startup ecosystem here in Chicago, and both in size and influence only continues to grow. And the man responsible for a great deal of 1871 success is its CEO. Howard, thanks so much for joining us. Great. I'm glad to be here. Before we jump into all the questions of the day, can you give us a sense for how you got involved in the venture investment industry?
1: I got involved in the venture industry actually in two different ways. First of all, I'm an investor in a number of Chicago funds personally. So I'm an investor and have been for a zillion years with J.B. Pritzker in New World Ventures. I'm an investor in MK Capital, which is... Mark Kula George and Brett Maxwell, uh, both funds one and two. And then, as you mentioned, I have a couple of funds of my own. One of the first was, uh, Chicago high tech investors and we invested, uh, in New World. We invested in Blue Star and we invested in KB partners. So that was a case where we wanted to take a group of investors. It, back in those days, an individual investor, even a successful angel, wasn't in a position to meet sort of the gating factor of a five hundred thousand to a million dollar uh, minimum investment. So what we did is we put together about sixteen of us, aggregated about three million dollars, and then invested a million or a million and a half, you know, depending on which of the funds it was in each of the three funds in Chicago that we felt were going to really take advantage of the early dot-com period. So that was early 90s.
0: Great. Before we get into this topic, previously I've had some guests on and we've covered venture capitalists, angel investors, and their constituencies. So we're not going to go real deep on those today, but I'd like to touch on some of the other key players on the investment side of venture first. So... Uh, Let's start out with funds of funds. We've discussed venture funds, but can you give us a sense for what funds of funds are and how they fit into the big picture?
1: Well, funds of funds are very basically an idea that instead of taking a position in a single fund where you're investing and betting on the management and a specific investment strategy, which might be around a vertical, it might be around an industry, it might be around a type of uh investment. Fund of funds usually say we're going to aggregate twenty or thirty different funds and we're going to give you a much broader exposure to multiple solutions, multiple strategies. The problem is, you know, when they get beyond a certain extent of size and a certain diversity, they start to tend to look much more like the standard and poor's indexes. All you know, this is the exact same thing as the kind of tracking and sort of market driven funds, you know, you're never going to hit a home run necessarily, but you're also never going to lose your money. You might just track the market. So we've looked a little bit, as I said, our first fund, the CHIP fund was a fund of funds to that extent. But the other thing that we did is we figured, well, look, if all you're doing is picking funds, we don't want to pay twice. So one of the other issues is how many people are charging you a fee for the privilege of you know, being in that? And in our case, we said, all right, we're going to invest in these other funds, but we're not going to take any management fee. We're not going to take any override. So otherwise, you have basically a situation where each of the underlying funds is extracting a fee uh, and an upside reward. And then the management of the fund that you're in is doing the same thing. So you're paying twice.
0: Fees on top of fees, right? Do you find that typically funds are diversified across different asset classes, so a mix of traditional PE, venture capital, et cetera, or do you find that they operate within their own asset classes?
1: I think they operate more within their own asset classes. It's very rare that somebody would say, we're a single purpose fund, but we're going to invest in gold and real estate. Uh, now, J.B. Pritzker, As an investor, because he's investing his own funds, pretty much has that flexibility and that's a very interesting, different kind of approach. But any traditional fund is going to basically have a mission statement that's going to define the sectors and the nature of their investments and they could be a vertical sector, so they could say we're doing medical and healthcare, or they could be a stage investor, we're doing early stage, late stage, you know, private equity stage kinds of things. But very few people would, with a straight face, be in a position to tell you that they had developed expertise across multiple asset classes.
0: Do you find that the LPs that invest in those funds of funds are typically on the retail, on the institutional side? They're totally big institutions. Good deal. So let's move on to placement agents. Of course, there are placement agents that play a key role in venture and often are some of the best people to know from a networking standpoint. What I'm driving at here are the folks that connect a fund with an institution or a retail investor, an LP, uh, that is well-suited to invest in that fund. Okay,
1: so so that's really an area that is totally network-driven, and it's something that I think in the last few years... Because there hasn't been a rash of new funds, most of that is is historical relationships. You know, most funds that are active today are on fund three, four, five, six, seven, you know, and basically they're following the model that you disperse 40 or so percent of your fund and then you start raising your next fund and you try to go for a higher, greater amount. What they do is they go back to these guys. So this may be a wasting, you know, business in the sense that, If they're going back to the same institutions, they have a decent track record. And by the way, mostly they're going back to these institutions before they have a track record because they're trying to get the guys to put their next money in before they have a whole lot of exits. But putting that aside, I don't think that you are calling on uh, travelers or you're calling on one of these giant funds and you have a relationship. I don't think you need somebody to hold your hand when you're doing fund two or fund three. So. I haven't seen there. There aren't like 40 new funds that have come into existence. In fact, there's probably very, very few. The the direction that is changing is as these big venture funds are getting priced out of participating in the early stage business because they have to put five and ten million dollars to work, and nobody needs it right now. You know, you need a half a million, but you don't need five million, and nobody wants to suffer that dilution. The people who are filling that gap. Our corporate venture funds. And, and what has definitely happened is in the last year, there's probably been 50 to 100 new corporate venture funds coming back into existence or being reinvigorated or newly funded, whether it's Cisco or Walgreens or any of these big corporations. They absolutely would tell you with a perfectly straight face that they have not done anywhere near the R&D they need to do, that they're not generating the sufficient number of ideas internally, and therefore, they're doing this investment, uh, setting aside funds to invest in startups to see new ideas. And if they were being honest, they would also tell you another thing, which is that this is off-balance sheet investing, which means instead of hiring five guys and have that hit your P&L, you make an off-balance sheet investment in some startup. And two years or three years from now, it either makes it or it doesn't. But in the meantime, you haven't punished your earnings by hiring additional staff. You haven't got any ongoing expense.
0: Yeah, I come from the industry side, did M&A for a big multinational, and uh, we would call it open innovation, working with very early-stage companies, helping them, whether it be providing access to our channel, uh, you know, taking equity options, loans, uh, strategic coaching, et cetera, to try and get them. To that stage where they then can become an asset or become acquirable. And in that time, we saw a significant contraction of the R&D folks in the organization. Organizations always looking to de-risk. Yeah, sure. People are expensive. Just touching more on that corporate side, can you talk about how corporate industries here in Chicago, how do they plug in to the startup ecosystem being these big monolithic players that don't traditionally work with uh, very small, nimble teams?
1: Well, right now we have at least three initiatives around that. So 1871 has a specific initiative around innovation days where a company will come in, explain some of their problems. We will identify our some of our portfolio companies and sort of curate those guys and say, we think these are 10 companies that are going to give you some good ideas for your business. They'll pick maybe five or six, then they'll have a mini demo day, come in and meet these companies and engage with them. On a state level, Illinois has something called the Corporate Startup Challenge, and that's doing exactly the same kind of matchmaking on a structured basis. I think they're on Class 3, and they've had about a 50% engagement. In other words, when they put the parties together, have the demo day, they would say that they have better than 50% of those that have germinated pilots, tests, or some kinds of early-stage partnerships. So we're seeing the companies expressing a willingness to do it. We're still building the systems that permit them to do that intelligently. And frankly, uh, you know, somebody just told me a story about a company that one of the giant insurance companies was willing to work with, but one of their requirements was like a $5 million performance bond. Now, you know, that's not Austin Powers, I mean, it's not really $5 million, but it's not cheap, and it's a—it's certainly not the kind of thing that a startup is going to want to spend a whole lot of money on just to get in the door, and yet a lot of these companies have, you know, very substantial risk profiles and stuff like that, so they're likely to uh, have requirements. Same thing with anything in healthcare now, with HIPAA and with these unbelievable requirements. Uh, make it very difficult for a startup to make the time and the uh, cost investment in order to engage with these big companies.
0: So you touched on this before, fundraise brokers. So I'd like to jump into that. From my experience, I've noticed that some fundraise brokers will also operate as venture capitalists or other key players in the industry. Um, There's a pretty famous VC in Chicago that I know has been brokering or connecting a number of startups to capital. But if we focus on those that operate as fundraise brokers purely, what function are they performing and why?
1: Well, I'm not sure that they perform a function that I'm particularly impressed with or in favor of because, you know, I would call them mini investment bankers, or at least that's what they would say. And the problem that I've discovered is, The minute something goes sideways or that something doesn't work out, they're the first ones to run to the hills and say, look, I wasn't vouching for the numbers. I wasn't uh, the company. I was just an intermediary. I wasn't (laughs) doing the due diligence. Shame on you if you invested in this company. Now, that's not what they said going in. Sure. But that's what they say immediately after something doesn't work out perfectly. So. I have not been impressed with these guys that say, you know, I'll take 5% of what I can raise for you or something like that, because I'm not sure that they bring anything to the party. I mean, I've had some of our startups come to me and say, these guys want to invest in us. They tell us they have a great network. They tell us they can do all these things. And, you know, what do you think? And, you know, in some cases I'll say, look, they do have good connections and they can help you. And in other cases, I'll say, I don't know him from Adam. And if I don't know him from Adam after 50 years in this town doing these businesses, it's hard to imagine that, uh, you necessarily want to take a pretty aggressively negative valuation from these guys in order for them to do you some alleged set of favors. So I'm not, that's a sector I'm not impressed with. I'm much more impressed with what's going on in fundraising platforms than with these broker guys.
0: And just to be clear for the audience, they take more of a transactional role. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, linking up capital with promising startups and uh, they get their cut and they go along their merry way. So not really taking a risk position on either side. Not usually. I mean, some of them will say, I'll take some stock
1: or I'll take a portion of my fee in equity. But as often as not, they want to get
0: paid out. Good deal. So, one of the more interesting players that has uh, been evolving in the industry are fundraising platforms. I really wanted to touch on this because it's changing. It's causing some shifts in the industry and wanted to get your insight. So, tell us about what fundraising platforms are and can you give us some examples of different types of platforms?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, a fundraising platform is essentially a group or a a company that's trying to make it possible for uh, a company looking to raise money to reach out to a very broad population of people who might be interested, but not necessarily one-on-one it's really sort of a crowd sourced or crowdfunded thing. Now in the United States, we're a generation behind the rest of the world where you can do equity crowdfunding in the United States to date. You can't, you can sell anything you want, but you can't sell stock. You can sell your product to be made. You can sell t-shirts, you know, to, in support of the movie you want to make. You can sell whatever you want as a premium or as a perk for a certain amount of money contributed to your business, but it's not an equity investment. The jobs act of about two years ago now passed by President Obama, was intended to bring the United States into what's going on in Israel, what's going on in Europe, which was to permit companies to sell actual equity in their businesses to investors, including investors they didn't know from Adam, and including investors all over the world. The SEC has sat on this for 19 months. There's about 600 pages of regulations now. They're still not released. They're scared to death. That it's going to just open the doors to rampant fraud and you know, unsophisticated investors and a bunch of craziness. And they will have another dot com bubble and burst. But frankly, from the standpoint of small businesses, uh, this is a very appealing thing to have like a hundred thousand dollar investors is a lot more workable in this day and age of digital communication than have one 800-pound gorilla minding your business every single day. So companies like our crowd, and this is run by a guy named John Medved, who was here and talked to a couple of hundred investors at 1871 just recently, they've done $200 million worth of equity crowdfunding. And in the United States, Indiegogo is the leader in this space. Now, people think of Kickstarter as sort of the generic phrase for this, uh, do a Kickstarter campaign. But the guys who created Kickstarter have basically said that if and when equity financing is permitted, they still don't want to be in this business. So they won't be doing this as far as their current, you know, position goes. Indiegogo, on the other hand, will be the go-to guys for this as soon as it's uh, enabled. And so 1871 is working specifically with Indiegogo in order to get them to open an office in 1871 for the purposes of helping our companies get ready to do this and be actually skilled in terms of what it takes to do this.
0: And so that we clarify, we've got sort of the Indiegogos and Kickstarters as they exist now. Right. Which... Those are
1: campaigns. And then we have folks like Angel List and things which are essentially for venture opportunities.
0: Any candid thoughts, Howard, on how the investment side of this industry may change? Not as much on the startup side. Obviously, access to capital will be increased significantly if the SEC takes some action on the JOBS Act. Uh, But thoughts on the investment side of the industry, angels, venture capitalists, just any candid thoughts on how that may change?
1: I think that as the transparency of the world increases and as people have a better and clear vision of what is the story and the facts surrounding a specific company. I just don't think that the next two generations of kids and of people are going to use their father's or their grandfather's investment advisors. I think that there's going to be a tremendous appetite for just going direct. I think people are just going to say we can hook up with opportunities directly, you know, you've got a world where you can't earn anything, uh, you know, in a savings account. So, you know, all these people who are saying, you know, put some money away for any day. I mean, it's almost like it's negative interest. So I think that there's going to be a tremendous change. I don't think anybody's going to go to Charles Schwab and, you know, anybody's going to have investment advisors in the same fashion. So I think some of these intermediaries, firms and organizations that purport to give investment advice Are going to have a hard time convincing these next couple of generations that they add real value.
0: All right, let's move on to the non investment side. So, we've talked about some of the investment players, but there's a number of key players on the non investment side that are critical for investors to connect with. Let's start with incubators and accelerators. Can you highlight the differences between the two and walk us through their value add in the process?
1: Sure, I would say that an accelerator is the highest order. In this sort of pecking order, and an accelerator is a finite period of time. It's generally a for-profit operation. It's generally going to provide some financing, usually in the form of a convertible note. When you engage with the accelerator, it's going to have a fixed time frame. So call it 12 to 16 weeks, maybe le- maybe eight to 16 weeks. It's going to have an output that's going to be. Uh, We're going to improve your company's saleability, and we're going to help you culminate your accelerator experience in a demo day where we'll introduce you to investors in volume who are potentially investors in the next round of your financing. That's an accelerator. An incubator can or may take an equity interest, but doesn't generally take an equity interest. The time frame in an incubator can be up to two years in some cases. Some of the incubators haven't figured out a strategy for how to get rid of folks. I We were just with some guys from Indianapolis, and they're like, Jesus, we have people hanging around forever, and we don't know exactly how to politely tell them to go somewhere else. So incubators are intended to provide some resources, and the best of them, I, and I think of 1871 as co-working, but also as an incubator. We're trying to provide educational resources, tremendous amounts of support in other ways, a lot of networking, a lot of, you know, infrastructure. So that's an incubator. And then you have, you know, as you go down the pecking order, You have co-working spaces, which don't invest a whole lot of anything in understanding that you're building a culture and a content and network and a whole environment, and you need to have some value add. And then at the bottom, you have landlords who are basically real estate guys, and they have some empty space, and they buy a few desks and a couple of coffee machines, and they say they're an incubator or co-working or whatever you want to call it. And I haven't been impressed, and I don't think they'll be around very long.
0: I'm curious how you would define 1871. Uh, you mentioned incubator, you mentioned co or co-working spaces, you know, startup hubs. Which category do you think 1871 well, fits
1: in? Well, I think we're a startup hub that is also an incubator, but you have to understand that, you know, 1871 is so big, I mean, we'll have, by the end of the year, a hundred thousand square feet of space and probably four or five hundred companies. We have TechStars Chicago within our environment, so we are an accelerator in that sense. That's one of our attendants. We have Impact Engine. That's another accelerator within our space. So you've got twenty or thirty companies at any instant of time that are literally performing and functioning as they are within an accelerator and then they're within our space as well. We'll have the Startup Institute. It's a group that teaches people to work in startups. We have uh, the starter school you alluded to before. They've changed their curriculum from basically nine weeks or something to nine months, and they're now trying to train people on code, then on UI, and ultimately on being an entrepreneur. So they're trying to turn out people that are not just coders, but who are capable, if they want, of taking their idea and turning it into a business. So we have all of that going on. Then we have the universities who are conducting all kinds of experiments around incubation and startups and entrepreneurship as well. So 1871 is really some of all of these things. I'd say the only thing we're not is we're not essentially in the business of selling desks. We don't really care very much about that and uh, we want our members, obviously our members contribute to making the business a successful economic enterprise, but we're really about building a hub for the city, and ultimately the only measurement that's going to matter for 1871 is how many businesses and how many jobs are we creating for the city and for the state.
0: Certainly feels like a central nervous system to me. You've got the brain over at the Merchandise Mart, and then uh, just connections with all these accelerators, incubators, investors, et cetera. So. Well, and we just announced Google for entrepreneurs.
1: I mean, we just announced drop-in rights for our members with eight different Google you know, incubators. We now have a similar relationship in Tel Aviv. We have a similar relationship in London with Level 39. These are really powerful because if you're going to build a global business, which every business needs to be, the ability for us to assist you in facilitating going to any major market in the country now or any major city in the world and landing on your feet there is a very powerful value added. That's not something you're going to get from some guy who's uh, in the real estate business who basically just had some spare space.
0: Okay. Before we wrap up key players, I want to touch on media and information outlets as well as event outlets. So the tech crunches, the built in Chicago's, even meetup. You know, at first I didn't realize the value of getting plugged in as an investor. Uh, Can you highlight the major types of media players and why it's important for venture investors to utilize both outlets with broad geographic scope as well as those in their area?
1: Well, I think that there's three different buckets. So the first bucket I would tell you is that there are whether it's uh, Shelly Palmer or whether it's uh, TechCrunch or whether it's uh, any of four or five different uh, companies, including Gizmodo and things like that, there's a tremendous amount of activity and you have to pick your shots. You can't watch and read all this stuff, but I think that if you want to be aware of what's going on, you need to actively, every single week, expose yourself to these report services that lets you know, and they may just be rumors, who the hell knows, but, I mean, if you don't know directionally where Facebook is going, Apple is going, Cisco is going, Motorola, maybe 10 companies, then you're not going to understand where this industry of, you know, technology and mobile and digital is headed. So one thing that's really critical is to be an intelligent investor is to try to use these people that are doing pretty quality research and uh, investigation around what's happening. That's the media, the pure print side of this, or the pure digital side of this. In the world of things like Built in Chicago, which sort of started as a media play and as sort of a super blog, I mean, what it's morphed into is really a connector for more than 20,000 folks that are registered on Built in Chicago. But the biggest thing that's emerged is they kept having companies saying, can you help me find people? So I would say the model of built in Chicago today is it's a, you know, it's a job board that's competitive on a localized basis, probably with LinkedIn. Again, you have to pick your shots. You know, you can't be every single day. You can't be following Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and 14 other things, you know, with any degree of coherence. And that's why, by the way, Facebook is, is in terms of social, Facebook is doing more than 50% of the social sharing. Then you've got Twitter, then you've got LinkedIn, then you have Instagram. And the missing player, the the organization that has squat for traction is Google+. They have hundreds of millions of people who they've sort of force-fed into signing up as a product of using Gmail or whatever, or just Google. But they're not sharing. It's less than 2%. So people are making their choices about where they're going. It's going to be very hard to disrupt them. I think, uh, the WhatsApp acquisition was way overpriced, but it's an international strategy that's going to be significant for Facebook. And so those kinds of, uh, organizations, LinkedIn built in Chicago, those are digital, you know, meetups. Uh, you know, I don't spend a lot of time on Foursquare or meetup or these kinds of things. And then lastly, I suppose, are the physical events. And I think that the physical events are going to increasingly shrink in duration, but in terms of one-day things, like today Tom Friedman is doing, you know, one of his New York Times events in San Francisco, very powerful. I mean, he can get virtually anybody to come, and you spend a day there listening to 20 smart people, you know, sort of curated by Tom Friedman. That's high value. You know, I think Ted is sort of novel these days. And, you know, it's great that they have these g whiz presenters. But in terms of substantive knowledge in the specific areas that I'm interested in, whether it's education or innovation or technology or entrepreneurship, there are a few conferences every year that are just absolute, you got to go, you know, if you want to stay on top of it. And I think that those are very important tools for investors to continue to make sure that they're exposed to The velocity and the volume of change that's going on. Can you give us
0: a sense for some of those conferences that you'd recommend?
1: Well, so the GSV conference on education that uh, Deb Quazzo runs with Mike Mo and uh, her team in uh, Arizona every year, 150% of everybody that matters in education finds their way down there for three days. I mentioned the Tom Friedman thing. There are a couple of, uh, you know, sort of ad hoc things. Frankly, Inc. does a great job, whether it's at the Inc. Groco conference, uh, which this year was in New Orleans, or whether the Inc. 500, 5000 conference is coming up in Arizona, uh, later this year, where I'll be speaking. You know, when I go there, I can, cons- I'm consistently impressed that in three days, I'm going to see 40 or 50 different people that I wouldn't have access to and they're curated and they're time sensitive and nobody's sitting there. You know, I've given up pretty much on panels because I think by and large panels where, you know, you have a moderator and you ask somebody, you know, for a minute and a half question to answer something in a very general generic terms. And half the guys are trying to be entertaining and half the guys are trying to be informative or humorous. You know, to me, These programs where you get a guy who knows his stuff and he's going to talk for 30 to 40 minutes and you're going to have seven or eight of those a day for a couple of days and you're going to have a couple of tracks, that's a lot of value. That's a lot of value if you're really there and you pay attention and if they got the right people. you know, I think that you have to have people that are interested in sharing real knowledge and not telling war stories because I'm not sure that these war stories... Don't get a little old, especially when you don't know whether the guy telling the story, who's done it one time, whether you don't know whether he was lucky or smart. You know, if the guy's done it 20 times, it's a different story. I'll listen to Mark Cuban talk because I think Mark Cuban has demonstrated four and five different times that he has a really interesting approach and attitude and sort of mental tools and you know physical tools to take advantage and understand startup businesses.
0: So for folks that are new to startup investing, maybe new angels, maybe uh, young people that want to get into the industry as a professional... This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants... And two times back on recurring SaaS spend, and all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, NewStack has been raising capital on a deal by deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. to learn more or a practitioner. Any recommended resources that they should be accessing, whether it be on the topic today or anything just on getting involved?
1: Well, on the issue of startups, I mean, I've written eight books now. They're called The Perspiration Principles. They're all available on Amazon digitally. They're not expensive. And they're a full course in what goes on in starting a business, running a business, how to be an entrepreneur. So I certainly... Highly recommend those. I recommend my <laughs> Ink blog, which is something I do every week. What I would tell you is that uh, the best thing you can do is to get your feet wet, and that is to get involved at a place like 1871 or get involved in whatever startup environment is going on in your town or your community and just try to to, on your own, try to meet some of these people and determine whether you think... Uh And this isn't a question of putting your money where your mouth is. This is literally just try to understand uh if you talk to six different guys or if you go to a demo day, for example, you know, try to figure out after you hear their talk, what are the points that you really would want to hear more on? What are the points that are going to help you make a decision? And you can do this for a year just pretending, literally pretending like I have a 100,000 bucks, I'm going to invest 10,000 bucks in these five companies and what are they going to be the factors? What are they going to be the considerations that are going to tell me that this guy at least has a shot? And by the way, we do this every day at 1871 because we have an intake system that doesn't let anybody and their dog walk in the door. So we're constantly saying, do you have a team together? Do you have a business side, you know, that's more than an idea? Do you have a reasonable prospect at success? Because if we're going to spend our time and energy trying to make you successful, we want to know that you're starting as high up on the curve as possible. All right. So good segue. Tell us more about what you're up to
0: at 1871.
1: Well, so 1871 has been around for two years. We have about 250 startups now. We have about uh, all the universities there. We have, as I said, seven or eight venture funds. We have uh, two or three accelerators. We have two or three incubators And 1871 2.0 will sort of launch in September, October of this year, where we'll be adding another 25,000 square feet with a focus on vertical areas where we'll cluster companies around edtech, fintech, femtech, Internet of Things, real estate, food, and startups. So those will be instances where We'll have 10 or 15 companies, and they'll be uh, working on all in the area of education. We just think that, that generates tremendous synergy and happy accidents and serendipity and all of these things. And by and large, they're not competitive with each other. By and large, they're sort of cumulative and additive. And so we're doing that in our new space. We'll also have new offices for more venture funds from both coasts. And we'll have some space for our alumni companies, which as they grow, won't have to leave the community or the environment. They'll be a part of this new expanded 1871. In that space, we'll also be doing a curriculum around startup engineering to really improve the prospects that businesses can be successful. And we'll be working, as I mentioned before, with Indiegogo. There'll probably be a video uh, lab facility to create better marketing materials So a lot to continue to sort of raise the bar in terms of what are all the resources that it's going to take for a company to be successful and how can we up the odds that they will be successful.
0: So you've worn a lot of hats and you've got a wide breadth of experience in venture. How did you decide to take the CEO role at 1871?
1: So the mayor and the governor made me do it. I actually... uh, (laughs) (laughs)
0: Not ROM, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know,
1: it's hard to say no to ROM or the governor, actually. But look, I was interested. It was a hard search to find somebody because it's a nonprofit, so you have to really want to do this. I'm excited about working with hundreds of different companies and enthusiastic. And also, uh, you know, I mean, and this isn't tooting my own horn, but it was not easy to find an entrepreneur with the credibility to tell these guys, all these entrepreneurs, uh what we thought of their idea and whether we thought they could be successful or not. So and then frankly again the mayor and the governor having millions of dollars you know invested in this operation wanted it to be successful. And you know and so this 2.0 at 1871 is also about real businesses, real metrics, real accountability and creating real jobs. And so that's my job. That's what I signed up to do. And you know that'll be the proof of the pudding. I mean, we want to create businesses that are sustainable because in this country, the only real job growth has been generated in the last 10 years by startups.
0: So tell us more about that startup environment here in Chicago and how you've seen it change. Well,
1: I would say that, you know, the MART and 1871 has become absolutely the go-to address for technology in the city. Uh, We're within, uh, just within a mile of the MART, we have about 7,000 tech jobs now. Illinois added about 3,400 tech jobs just in the last year. And we're on the map. I mean, we're on the national and the international map. We're the largest in the country in terms of what we do. Everybody swings by here. Just in the recent past, we've had Cheryl Sandberg. We had Mark Cuban. We had Steve Case. We had Ben Horowitz. We had uh, David Cameron from London. Every dignitary stops by here. We have a group in from the State Department now of entrepreneurs from all over the world. That were brought here by the State Department for three days to really learn about entrepreneurship and how it's conducted in 1871. Uh, we've had, you know, groups that are bringing teams of startups from Turkey, from Tel Aviv, from
0: London this summer. So lots going on. If we could cover any topic in venture investing, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak on it?
1: Well, you know, I think that the hardest thing uh, these days is to find out uh and focus on, you know, not B2C. I mean, B2C, I think, you know, we have a clear understanding that if you want to do some goofy ass building, you have a business uh in B2C, that there will be somebody in California who will throw money at you and let you take your shot. And those are all about home runs. Those are all about home run businesses, and they're prepared for that. That's not the nature of what goes on in Chicago. In Chicago, I think we're going to see more and more B2B businesses taking advantage of the fact that we have major corporations here. There's 33 Fortune 500 corporations headquartered in Illinois, 28 of them in Chicago proper. That's the second largest concentration of Fortune 500 companies in the country. So if you want to start a business today, it's not about capital. It's really about customers. And so this is a great place if you're international or even if you're starting any business to start in Chicago with a great standard of living, with good talent, with great capital, with great customers. It's important. And honestly, I think that if I was to listen to anybody these days, I mean, I think the guy in the country who best understands what we're going through is Clay Christensen, who's a good friend and who's teaches at Harvard and speaks on disruptive, really invented the idea of disruptive innovation. And you need to understand what that really means in order to understand as you look at a group of companies, is the targeted industry appropriate? What's the time frame? Do these companies have disruptive solutions? And you have to understand the difference between invention and innovation. And we're all about innovation, which is just figuring out how can a business save me time or money or increase my productivity. And there are very few people that really understand um, how to make that into a science. That's one of the things we're trying to do at 1871.
0: So we touched on this before. We talked about some resources for new people to angel investing. How about advice? If there was any piece of advice that you could give to someone who's brand new to startup investing, what would that be?
1: Well, I think there are five components that you have to look for. First of all, it's all about the jockey. It's never about the horse. Okay. It's all about is the person you're investing in going to get it across the finish line? And if not, forget it. I mean, the best ideas in the world don't mean anything. So now if you break that down, what are the five things that you want that you're looking to see that this person has to decide that they're backable, to decide that they're the person you want to put your money on? So I would say number one is passion. They actually have to you know, want desperately to do this. Number two is preparation, that they have the tools and the skills to do it. Number three is actually uh, perspiration, that they're going to put in the work that it takes. Number four is perseverance, that they're not going to give up on you because a lot of people are like, wow, this is too hard. Well, yeah, that's what you signed up for. And number five is principles. You know, if they're scumbags, you just uh, don't want to do it. And when you roll that all together, what happens is that every business starts with a dream, but you want to back the entrepreneur whose dream is not about making money, but it's the entrepreneur whose dream is about making a difference. Because that's what will keep them on the field. That's what will keep them working. That's what will make them successful. If it's about money, it's you got something off. So if I was to give anybody the advice, I would use that checklist. It's worked very well for me for 20 or 30 years. And I think it's what it takes to be successful.
0: Always great advice from Howard. I was reading an article of yours recently. I think it was pivot, don't twirl. Right. (laughs) Uh, Great message in the article. You always have a great sense for how to deliver advice and how to summarize things in a way that is uh, easily consumable. So uh, check out that article. And um, in general, what is the best way for listeners to connect with you?
1: I think just uh, H, my first initial at 1871.com. Couldn't be easier.
0: Excellent. Check out the blog. It's Tolman.blogspot.com. His Twitter handle is at Tolman. Howard, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you today. Really great of you to do it, and I hope we can do this again sometime. Great.
1: Happy to be here, and thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Howard.
0: Big thanks to Howard Tolman for doing the show. Great of him to give us a rundown of the key players and share his insights on startup investing. If you're in Chicago, certainly stop by 1871 over at the Merchandise Mart. Uh, If you're part of the startup ecosystem in any way, it's a great place to spend some time. All right, let's review some of the key notes from the episode. Number one, first I wanted to recap accelerators and incubators and highlight some of the key differences. All right, so accelerators tend to have a very competitive selection process that involves a series of applications and interviews. Uh, Incubators allow most startups that have the money to pay for the program to enroll. In addition, accelerators typically have a grant or provide funding to the startup in exchange for equity, or they may do a convertible note. Incubators usually cost money, so the startup pays the person running the incubator to be a part of it. All right, another point of differentiation is that accelerators operate in cohorts over a fixed period of time. So a group of startups are admitted to the cohort, they spend the next, say, three to four months in the accelerator, and then they graduate at the end. Uh, many startups will claim to have graduating companies that are prepared for a seed round as well. Um, so it's a nice transition point into a fundraise. Incubators typically don't have a finish date. So startups can stay for as long as they're getting value from the services and the programs at the incubator, uh, assuming they continue to pay to be a part of that incubator. And maybe you've heard of some of the more famous accelerators like Y Combinator or Techstars. A side note that's worth mentioning is that in some cases, venture funds are created and focused just on graduates of these accelerators. Like any rigorous selection process, the startups that get admitted to these cohorts are no joke. Doesn't mean they're going to be successful, but it is a pretty rigorous filter. So some startup investors like to focus here because a portion of the vetting process is already complete and they're dealing with a team that has received some money has access to great services through the Accelerator, and has a powerful network from the Accelerator. Okay, the second point I wanted to review from the conversation with Howard is on crowdfunding. So the U.S. lags behind the rest of the world in crowdfunding for equity. Sites like OurCrowd, based in Israel, do this currently. And as we discussed on the Angel Investing episode, the Jobs Act does allow for crowdfunding for equity but the provision that contains that clause has not been enacted by the SEC. Uh, Many think that it will, at least in some amended form, and it's important to know that in the future, Indiegogo plans to incorporate crowdfunding for equity into their platform. So keep an eye out for news on the JOBS Act, and if the SEC takes action, look out for Indiegogo as one of the leading platforms. Okay, the third point I wanted to recap is uh, what Howard said about the five things to look for in a founder, because it's all about the jockey and not the horse. Number one was passion. Number two was preparation. Number three was perspiration. Number four is perseverance. And number five were principles. This is a list that he has used in evaluation of startups and their founders for years. Uh, it's not all he looks at, but they may be the most important characteristics to evaluate when it comes to the jockey. It's very worthwhile to make note of these and attempt to measure them or assess them when you're evaluating a startup for investment. Uh, You know, in the stock market, past history is not an indication of future results. But what I've found with people is that past history is very indicative of future results. It's rare for someone with a lack of integrity or work ethic to suddenly turn the corner. So keep that in mind. Okay, let's finish up with the tip of the week. This episode's tip of the week is communicate with your syndicate. We talked a lot today about various players in the space, but we didn't spend a lot of time talking about other investors. Uh, These people need to be your partners and allies, not your competition. When you're working on a deal with a startup, it is critical to talk with that startup about the other investors that are involved and try to connect with them. This really serves both the startup and the investors. In full disclosure, the very first deal I structured failed to close. I spent weeks negotiating and structuring. The deal did have some unique, non-traditional contingent provisions, so I had spent close to 2K on legal. I actually knew the other investors that were in the deal, including the lead, because the lead had decided to switch from a traditional equity structure to this proposed structure but I did a poor job of keeping in close contact with the other investors. So ultimately, we agreed on terms, and then I stumbled at the finish line. Uh, There was one provision that the founder got hung up on, and we went you know, back and forth over the course of a few weeks. And meanwhile, unbeknownst to me, he had floated the deal structure without this provision to his other interested investors that knew I had structured it. So these other investors were in, they got their money in, and ultimately, the round was oversubscribed in a couple weeks. So by the time the founder and I agreed on final terms, he no longer needed the money and I was left out in the cold. I still have investors in town that got in on that deal that have a good laugh when we see each other because apparently it's performing pretty well. So anyway, let's talk about the key advantages to communicating with your syndicate of angel investors on a deal. First, you got more brain power. So pooling due diligence often results in a more thorough review and evaluation of the startup. And of course, with that comes more negotiation power. Clearly, you'll have more leverage if you come to the table with 250K and five investors instead of 50K by yourself. Number two is speed. Uh, if the investor group is aligned and feels more comfortable, the deal can get done much more quickly. I can't tell you how many startups I meet that are chasing down 30 different investors that have been on the fence about investing for six plus months. Whereas if the group of investors had gotten together, reviewed the criteria, and agreed on terms, they tend to close much faster and feel much more confident about the deal. Okay, and then the third point is you can get better and more appropriate terms. It seems that when groups of experienced investors get together, the deal structure and key terms are much more appropriate than when individual angels negotiate for themselves. Uh, This is much better for both the startup and the investors. Clearly, there could be a clause or absence of a clause that could be very damaging to the investor's future equity position. And with another pair of eyes, it could have been avoided. I've also seen cases where an individual angel got his ideal terms in a convertible note, but didn't realize that this would never hold up in a subsequent fundraise. So when the startup goes to raise their Series A, uh, no VC would allow such a term, which either hurts the startup's ability to raise and or causes the term to get struck completely from the subsequent fundraise, which can be a very turbulent situation between the investor and the startup. While financially the right thing to do for the investor is to allow the term to be struck, emotions can get in the way and put the entire fundraise at risk. Take, for instance, a Full Ratchet. Uh, this, of course, is the deal term that I borrowed for the name of the show. And it may be somewhat amusing because it limits deal making more so than it promotes it. Um, I don't want to get too deep into the details of terms today, but simply a full ratchet secures the percentage of equity position for the investors. So if an investor receives 10% equity in a seed round during a future round, like a series A, that 10% cannot be diluted down. So either the investors in the subsequent round or much more often the founders get diluted even further than the norm. As you can expect, this can really impact the founder's future ability to raise unless they're willing to take all the dilution themselves. So to wrap up this point, it's often to your advantage to have multiple experienced investors to review terms and weigh in before a decision is made that adversely impacts the investors, the startup, or both. I can't tell you how many times I've been introduced to a startup after terms are set, and it's confounding why they selected the structure that they did. All right, that's it for today. If you have a chance, I'd really appreciate a review on iTunes. Uh, Someone mentioned to me the other day that they couldn't review on their mobile through the podcast app. I played around with that for a couple minutes, and I couldn't figure it out either. So I think the only way is to log into iTunes on your laptop, find the Full Ratchet podcast, and submit a review there. It's kind of a hassle, so if you don't have time, I don't blame you. Uh, Give me a follow on Twitter. I'm at The Full Ratchet. Jump on the website for links mentioned in this interview and notes from the show. You can also sign up for the newsletter there that goes out once a week by email. And uh, the easiest way to sign up for the newsletter is you can just send a blank email to newsletter at fullratchet.net. Okay, thanks for listening, and always remember, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you next week.